The prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah 9, it was first spoken in the 8th century BC and it was spoken to a hurting, hopeless, and weary people, a really beat up people. In Isaiah's time, God's people were on a steady decline. They were divided internally, they were threatened externally, their former glory was slowly and steadily being drained by uh, you know, personal unfaithfulness, but also the unfaithful, incompetent rulers and their political missteps. The whole society, listen, from top to bottom, was broken. It was rudderless. Its people, they once had a robust faith in God, a sincere faith. But over the years, over the generations, they'd either forgotten their faith or they'd just abandoned it entirely. They began to look and sound and speak just like the nations around them. And because of that, despair and hopelessness were the dominant notes among the people. And yet, despite the unfaithfulness of Judah... Despite their walking away from God, God did not walk away from them. Despite all this, throughout Isaiah's prophecy, in particular, Isaiah's chapter 6 through 8, and our focus here in chapter 9, promises that God will send a rescuer to his people. He would come to them in their darkness to bring them light. And he promised to do this through a king, through a chosen king. Where every other king had failed, this king would succeed. He would be the kind of king that this nation desperately longed for, but after so many disappointments had basically given up hope for. If, if you look at verses 6 through 7 of Isaiah's prophecy, you see this future king will certainly be a human. He will be born a son. He will be a true blood descendant of the great King David, perhaps Israel's best, most promising king. Back in chapter 7 of Isaiah, God through Isaiah promises uh, that there will be a particular sign, a unique sign marking his birth. This promised king will be born of a virgin. And this is, of course, what we're celebrating today at Christmas. Jesus Christ is the promised king from Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9. These words, spoken some 800 years before Jesus' birth, were about him. But Isaiah's words, of course, also show that Jesus, who is the promised human king, will be more than a human king. He'd be the divine king. In chapter 7, Isaiah says that the promised king will be called Emmanuel. He will be God with us. As verse 6 says in our text, he has... Four names that are given to him, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are divine titles. And so in one person, both a human and a divine nature, this is the person who is sent to God's people to rescue them. This is Jesus, who's the promised king. While the first hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, they had to look some 800 years into the future for this prophecy to be fulfilled. We have this joy today at Christmas to celebrate backwards as we wait with hope as well for Jesus' second, future, and final coming, when he will come to right every wrong, where he will finally wipe away every uh, tear from every cheek. In our sermon series through Advent, we've been looking at the four names given to Jesus here in Isaiah chapter 9. We've already looked at Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Today, we'll, we'll consider, we'll celebrate together the last title, the Prince of Peace. Also, I'll turn your attention to Isaiah 9 on your worship guide. The words of Isaiah the prophet, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you for sending your son to us this Christmas. Thank you for speaking to us now by your spirit through your word. Feed and care for your people now, we ask. Amen. Uh, moments ago, Corey and Jana led us through the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, and I wonder if you were surprised by the lyrics in the third verse. Uh, this is what they read. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now that might seem like a, a deeply pessimistic song to sing on Christmas morning. Like, I don't know if this church is always such a downer. <laughs> like, we picked the wrong church to come on Christmas morning. What kind of church is this? But, but if we look around our world, if we look into our lives and the lives of our neighbors, it actually doesn't take much looking to see that there is a lot of darkness in our world. And it's actually essential to understanding the message of Christmas, the message fundamentally of the Christian faith, to have open eyes, to look at the world in all of its darkness. The Christian faith is indeed hopeful, but it's not blind. It doesn't ignore the real suffering and the real pain in the world. Again, if we were to take a look together into our city, look into the lives of those that we care so much about, we would conclude what this song concluded. There is no peace on earth. The, the theologian uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, he once quipped that the doctrine of original sin, that is the doctrine that sin touches all of us in a fundamental way, this is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. This is something we can all agree on. If there's something that you and your non-Christian friends can agree on, it's this. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And yet, what does Isaiah 9 promise to us? Sorry, I've got a, a bit of a, a husky voice, a very manly voice this morning. I love it. I, I wish I had it more often. But as you look, so I'm sorry. It's normally like two octaves higher, so you're, you're welcome. You're welcome if you're visiting here. Okay, uh, what does Isaiah 9 promise us? That the Prince of Peace was born in the city of David 2,000 years ago, that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It, it's this, this is what Isaiah 9 is saying to a world that's filled with darkness, that Christ has come to bring peace. To, to be a prince in that time was not just to have a, a, a royal title. Like to, it meant, actually, you were a high-ranking, you were a powerful administrator. Uh, you weren't a prince like Prince William is a prince. You know, he, he goes to some charities, some galas, he does some photo ops, kisses some babies. He's really just a ceremonial figure. He doesn't do too much. He's, again, significant, but kind of powerless. Princes in Isaiah's day were not that. They could get stuff done. Uh, Joseph, from the book of Genesis, he was appointed a prince in the land of Egypt. And as such, he could create, he could implement any policy that he wanted, and he was given all the power to get it done. And that is the kind of prince that's being described here in Isaiah chapter 9. He, he has something that he comes to implement and to execute, and he has the power to do that. What is that thing? It's peace. Peace is his thing. That's what he's working on. That's what he's getting done for his people. The word for peace here in his title, Prince of Peace, and also uh, at the beginning of verse 7, it's a, it's a very important word in Hebrew. It's the word shalom. 
You know, you're familiar with that word. This is a really packed and weighty word, okay? Uh, it means far more than the peace that you and I usually uh, think of when we say it. Often when we say, you know, we have peace, it just means little, little more than we have no open hostility and conflict with other people. Nations that are at peace with, with each other doesn't necessarily mean that they're good friends. It just means that war is not happening right now. But shalom, the peace that the Hebrew Bible speaks of, is still a very common greeting among Jews today, and it means, it means this. It has a, a range of meanings, but it means full and perfect happiness. It means calm. It means safety. It means, it means freedom from your anxieties. It means harmony with God, harmony with man. It means wholeness. For someone to, to die in shalom, to die in peace, would mean that they had lived and, and, and led a deeply fulfilling life, that they had accomplished everything that God had laid out for them to do. Doesn't that sound amazing? Wouldn't you like some shalom, some peace for Christmas? What we don't want, and I think some of us have experienced, is, is a superficial, easily disturbed peace that's tied to our circumstances. A little more than peace as we mean it in English, which is just no open hostilities at the moment. But that kind of peace, as we've experienced, it is, is, is here today, gone tomorrow. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be looking at what true peace, true shalom, is like. What the Prince of Peace comes to bring to his people. What he comes to administer and what he has the power to bring to us. So here's, here's point number one of our outline. True peace, true shalom, is first peace with God. It's first peace with God. In Isaiah's day, again, historically, God's people had walked far, far away from God. They had ceased to listen to God's words. They had begun, again, to think and act and speak just like the nations around them. They'd even begun to worship like them, worshiping other gods. And as a consequence of this, there's a very clear line between their idolatry and their plunging into darkness. Uh, this nation was lost and rudderless. Nothing was working right. In verses 2 through 5, I'll just kind of summarize it. Judah at that time could be defined by spiritual darkness, by despair, by war, by conflict, by constant oppression. The words of Paul in Titus chapter 3, we just went through Paul's letter to Titus. This could well summarize Judah's condition at the time. Really, this is the human condition apart from Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Judah understood this. They didn't understand much, but they could at least see this, that they had no peace. They had no shalom as a people. But this was their solution to this problem. It wasn't a return to God. It wasn't seeking peace to God. It was to seek out what we could call a counterfeit peace. Peace that kind of seemed like the right thing, kind of felt right. But it was without value. It had no cash value. They did all they could to improve their circumstances, the situations around them, to improve themselves as a nation without addressing the root cause, their lack of peace with God. And so that peace, whatever they won, in short measure, didn't last. They were like somebody who deals with the symptoms of a disease rather than the disease itself. This is someone who takes medicine to reduce the fever, but won't deal with the infection that's spreading through their body and causing the fever. See, true peace, true peace, true lasting peace, true shalom doesn't just deal with symptoms, but it deals with the root cause of our lack of peace. Listen, the lack of peace that you feel in your life is not fundamentally due to your circumstances. It's not caused by the people around you. It's not caused by the history that you've lived. As difficult as, the, as that is, it's due to your lack of peace with God. 
This is the most important peace the Prince of Peace has come to bring us. Peace with God. Christ's mission through his life, through his death on the cross, was to bring a people back to God. Colossians 1 says it this way. Through Christ, God was reconciling to himself all things, whether on, in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the kind of peace we celebrate most at Christmas, right? Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We rightly want peace in our world, and by that we mean Peace between people, peace in our relationships, internal peace, the end of war. But listen, peace with God is our most essential need. J.I. Packer once wrote, The good news of Jesus, the fundamental core message of Christianity, it actually does bring us solutions to the problems in our world, our internal lack of peace, our external problems. But it does so by first solving the deepest of all problems, the problem of man's relationship with his maker. And unless we, as Christians, as a church, as a preacher, we make it plain that the solution to these former problems actually depends on the settling of this latter one, we are misrepresenting Christianity. We are becoming false witnesses of God. Again, this is is the trap that we often get into. We think that if our circumstances were better, we'd be better off, right? And so we go off and we do everything we can in our power to better ourselves and our circumstances. And fundamentally, what we're doing is we're treating symptoms but not the cause. Judah at the time, it was under the threat of the northern Northern alliance. It was was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. They joined together. They were trying to destroy Judah. Um, And so God told Judah this, I'll be with you. Trust me. Walk with me. God offered Judah peace with him. But instead of receiving that peace from God, Judah foolishly made an alliance with somebody else. They sought peace through the Assyrian Empire. Uh, This eventually led to even greater trouble for Judah. When you lack peace, when you feel the lack of peace, when you feel pressures internal and external coming on you, do you seek peace with God or do you seek solutions? Uh, When you're worried, when you're stressed out, is your first response, I need to run to God right now to seek peace? Or do you look for peace in all the wrong places? Imagine being at a doctor's office and, and you receive the diagnosis that you've long dreaded. It's cancer, and it's bad. Counterfeit peace, a peace that's easily shaken, is is self-improvement thinking. It's thinking, okay, I can handle this on my own. I'm I'm mentally strong. The doctors are skilled. They've made a lot of advances in the research. I've got a job that gives me some financial flexibility. It's all good. That's easily shaken. That could be here today, gone tomorrow. But true peace, true shalom in that moment comes from having peace with God. Knowing in your bones that God is for you. That he is with you. To have a, a deep, unshakable peace that's not tied to circumstances and situations. That you have an infinite, eternal father who knows you, who loves you, and, and will not let anything happen in your life that is not ultimately for your good. That in life and death, He is your father, and he will be with you. That is the true peace that we need. That is the peace the Prince of Peace comes to give us. That's point number one. First, true peace is peace with God. Second, true peace powers patience. True peace powers patience. One of the most challenging things, I think, preaching through Isaiah 9 for me has been knowing in the back of my mind that the people who first heard these words, they didn't live to see its fulfillment. 
They heard these great promises from Isaiah, but they were living in the bleak times of the mid-700s BC, and Christ wouldn't be born for, for well over 700 years afterwards. And not only that, but things were about to go from, from worse to worser. They were going to get way worse before they got better for Judah. Within the next few years, historically speaking, the Assyrian Empire would come, they would conquer, and they would crush the northern kingdom of Israel completely. They would deport them, and they would never be seen again, really. They would never come back into the land in the full way that they had before. Within 200 years after that, the southern kingdom of Judah, its great city Jerusalem, its temple, the very center of their identity as a people, would be raised, would be tore down and burned utterly by the Babylonian Empire. Judah would return to the land a couple hundred years after that, only to be conquered again by Alexander the Great's uh, Greek army. And then a few hundred years after that, they'd be crushed by the Roman Empire. And so for nearly 800 years, the promises that we spoke of last night, Christmas Eve, of light, joy, and freedom, they remained completely in the future. Listen, generations and generations of people who read Isaiah 9, they lived and they died waiting for this word to come true. Think about how heavy that is. For 800 years, Judah was bullied pushed around, made captive, exiled by nations more powerful than them, and still they waited. They waited for the Prince of Peace to finally come. And we might not love this point. I don't love it either, but this is a biblical reality. True peace powers patience. When we have peace with God, that fundamental deep peace with our Maker, when we trust His words more than what our eyes can see, we're empowered to wait patiently for what He promises. Whenever you read prophecies in the Old Testament, typically they're spoken in what scholars call the prophetic perfect. It's called the prophetic perfect. The promises, which have not yet been delivered on, they're spoken as if they already have been. Uh, it's a feature. I don't know if you can see that in Isaiah 9. Uh, Isaiah doesn't say the people who walked in darkness will one day see a great light, but uh, they have seen a great light. Not you will one day increase their joy, but you have increased their joy. Not for in 800 years from now, a child will be born. No, for to us, a child is born. Why do prophets speak like that? Well, it's because of this. When God speaks a word, it's as good as done. It's sure and certain. When God makes a promise, the one who only speaks the truth, his word can be trusted completely. Isaiah can say with confidence, 800 years before Christ is born, the Prince of Peace is given to you. And this sure, this trustworthy word can empower your patience through the long and painful years as you wait in hope for God's word to be fulfilled. Do you have this kind of peace? Are you able to patiently wait for God's word to prove true? Listen, Judah, Judah didn't, all right? Uh, God said, Judah, I'll be with you. Judah said, yeah, I'd rather make an alliance with Assyria. <laughs> like, I'd rather have some safety right now. I don't want to wait uh, if you're not going to come now, I'm not going to wait. We're going to get stuff done on our own. We're tired of waiting. And listen, that's us. That's what we're like. God promises us. He speaks these words to us throughout the scriptures that in Christ, in Christ, we have everything we need. That, that in God, we have a father. That whether in life or in death, he is with us. And, and what do we do when times are tough, when the waiting is hard? We exhaust ourselves. We worry ourselves sick. 
seeking comfort, pleasure, security that is here today, gone tomorrow. Whether it's FOMO, right, or our lack of trust in God's word, we have no patience. And we have no patience because we, we have no peace. Friends, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you're waiting for. If you're waiting for uh, even very good things, a spouse, kids, your career to finally click, your kids to come back to the faith, your depression to finally lift, the peace of knowing that God loves you and his care has a hold of you as his child, this is the sure peace that powers patience. So first, true peace is peace with God, being reconciled to him, to have, to have things finally made right with your creator through the work of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Second, true peace powers patience. We, we do not need to grasp and grab after the things of earth. We can wait patiently knowing that God can be trusted completely. All of his words will, will prove true. And this is the third point. Number three, true peace changes the world. True peace changes the world. It's hard to miss the implications of Isaiah 9, that they are not simply personal, internal, and minute. Isaiah's prophecies are global, external, and massive. Uh, the Prince of Peace doesn't come to just give joy to me, to give satisfaction to me, give comfort and patience to me. Rather, we sing about joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. This peace that the Prince of Peace comes to administer is not meant to just change you and your life, but to change the world. We have to, we have to understand this. When, when we learn in Isaiah's uh, further prophecies that the peace that Judah is being given here in Isaiah 9, we learn that it doesn't just end with Judah. It spills over. It's extended to all nations, to all peoples. It's even given to nations that were historically the worst enemies of Judah. Nations like Egypt and Assyria. Listen to these words. I'm going to read them from Isaiah chapter 19. This is what God says. Egypt will return to the Lord. And God will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you hear that? The kind of peace that the Prince of Peace is, is, is bringing. It is global. It changes the world. So another kind of counterfeit peace we have, to, we have to be concerned to have our eyes open to around Christmas. We need to be wary about seeking a spiritual peace that is content with internal peace with God somewhere deep in our heart and in the hearts of other Christians to be content that, oh, at least we have peace here in this room. Let's keep it here. It warms us. No. What we see here in Isaiah and everywhere else in the Bible, that the peace with God, that the Prince of Peace gives, it leads inevitably to peace with others, increasing peace in our cities, in our world. That's what it is for. As people's hearts are first filled with Christ's peace, we're called then to let that peace spill over into our relationship. So in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about a servant who's been forgiven an unimaginable debt from a ruler. He's given peace with this ruler. But then immediately, what does he do? After being forgiven himself, he seizes and he strangles a fellow servant who owes him just a few dollars. And Jesus concludes the story by saying this. Then his master summoned him and said to him, 
you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, the peace and the, and the mercy that this servant received wasn't only for his own good. It was meant to be extended further out into the world. It had to, the master's saying. And in the same way, the peace with God that you have freely received in Christ, the peace that empowers your patience, is not simply meant to bless you in your internal heart, but it must go out. It must become a world-changing power. Jesus tells us, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Paul writes to a church gathering in Ephesus, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The peace that you've received from God, this is the priority, but it, it cannot stay as your peace with God. It must spill out. The commands to love others, to be kind, to be tenderhearted, to forgive others, these are not just moral imperatives kind of hanging up in the air. They are actually how the Prince of Peace continues to administer peace on earth between people. God transforms a people, changes their hearts, and then he sends them out in power to bring the peace of Christ to those who need it. If you have tasted this peace, if the Prince of Peace has come to you and given you peace, this peace must spill out into your relationships, to those in your church, those in your home, those in your workplace. This is true peace. It's the peace that changes the world. Let's end here. Um, the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, thankfully we didn't end it, verse 3. It would have been very emo, wouldn't have been fitting on Christmas. There is a, a couple versions of this, of this song. Uh, I'm going to read to you the fourth verse, the verse that comes right after this from, from another version. This is, this is how verse 4 goes, after the sort of pessimistic verse. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. For Christ is here, his spirit near, brings peace on earth, goodwill to men. Friends, hear this this Christmas. Christ is here. His spirit near. He brings peace on earth, goodwill to men. Believe this. Celebrate this. Let it change you. Give thanks to God for it. Now may you have peace with God through the work of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. May you receive this peace as a gift. May this peace empower your patience as you wait for all that God has promised, all of the goodness that he has in store for you. Even if it's not fully tasted and seen yet, you can be sure that he can be trusted. May this peace change your life. May it change your home. May it change your churches. May it change this city and this world that God so loved that he sent his Prince of Peace into. And may you celebrate and sing with joy. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. For Christ is here, his spirit near, to bring peace on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. Amen.